0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Sir Paul Nurse on his new book, What is Life? Prior to that, wanted to remind you about BooksOnPod.com. It's where you can hear all of our episodes as well as subscribe to the podcast through Apple, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. And give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BooksOnPod.
1: This is Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling.
0: Hello, readers. Sir Paul Nurse is director of the Francis Crick Institute in London. He previously served as the president of Rockefeller University, president of the Royal Society, and trustee of the British Museum. He received the 2001 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine and is the author of the book, What is Life? Five Great Ideas in Biology. Paul, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm
1: doing fine, and it's a pleasure to talk to you, too.
0: As the title of this book suggests, it is based around the question, what is life? When and why did you first ask yourself this question, Paul?
1: Well, you know, I thought quite hard about that because I'm a biologist, so it's a central problem for biology. And I got interested in that when I was a child, bordering on becoming a teenager, I think. And I remember several things, but one that sticks in my mind was watching a yellow butterfly. It was a particular type of butterfly, as I learned later. It's called a yellow brimstone. It comes out in early spring and it flew over the garden hedge. I was sitting in the garden. It was about March, early April, fluttered around, settled on a flower. I disturbed it. It flew up and then disappeared over the other garden fence. And I just began to think, you know, that butterfly, it's so very different to me, but it has some sort of resemblance as well. It's behaving in such a purposeful way. It was sort of like me, but it was alive, but I couldn't quite get my head around it. And I thought, well, what does it mean to be alive? And it's just one of the events that just made me think of becoming a biologist very early on.
0: You connect five different great ideas to help answer the question, what is life? Starting with the cell, then the gene, evolution by natural selection, life as chemistry, and life as information. Did you write this chronologically as it's laid out in the book? Or did you maybe start with that fifth component and then eventually work your way to the first?
1: No, I started with the first, the cell the basic unit of life. And what I was trying to do here really was take five of the great ideas of biology. Let me explain why I wanted to do that because I read a lot of popular science books and I've noticed particularly in biology, they are often written in a way where they're trying to look to the future, over the horizon, over to something that's yet to be discovered. And quite often, they're only transient in their nature, because looking over the horizon is very, very difficult. And you often don't get it right. And they sometimes can be exaggerated to say, you know, some subject is going to take over biology. But what I thought was missing was a popular book that focused on the real solid foundation of biology. And so I just thought of the five ideas And I've thought about them for quite a long while. And then I put it down. But chronologically, I wrote them in exactly the way that they are in the book.
0: So let's go ahead and start with that first component, the cell. You point out that cells come in all shapes and sizes. For instance, an egg yolk is one single cell. I did not know that before reading this book. But what do all cells have in common, Paul? Well, I started with the cell because it's the basic unit of life.
1: And I sort of sometimes call it life's atom. And it's a basic structural unit of life. And what I mean by that is that all life is either a single cell or a collection of cells. And single cells are alive. And we're made up of billions of cells. But if you take some of our cells, we can grow them in a Petri dish, in a glass dish. And they behave like a living organism, a very simple one, of course. And so it really is the simplest entity that exhibits the characteristics of life. And I put that plum center at the beginning of the book for a couple of reasons. One is, I don't think it's fully understood how important the cell is for life. And I wanted to make that particular point. But the second is, it is not only simple, but actually has many of the characteristics of complicated life forms. So it grows. reproduces, it has heredity, some of the other characteristics described in the ideas that I consider later. So if you're trying to look for principles about what is life, quite a good place to start is the cell, because if you could understand what is special about a cell, then you're quite a long way down the track in trying to work out what a living thing is. And so that's why I started with it, and that's why I think it's very important.
0: Why is cell division a significant aspect of this whole process?
1: Well, to grow, every living thing has to make more of what it's made up of. And if we take a cell, it's got to grow, uh, produce all the components that make up a cell. Then – it has to reproduce itself. It has to divide from one cell normally into two cells. This is brought about by a process we call the cell division cycle, because it's a cycle from the beginning of a newly born cell to a cell that is about to undergo division, and then you produce two newly born cells and they go through the cycle again. And so that process is the reproductive cycle of this simple living organism, as I view it. And it's very important because all living things have to grow and reproduce. And the simplest example of reproduction is this cell division cycle, the division of one cell into two. It's the basis, in fact, of all growth and all reproduction in all living things. So it is a core process for all life. And it's therefore universal to all life. So if you understand how the cell cycle works in any organism, then it is likely to be rather similar in all other organisms. So it's both central to life and it's also common to life. So it's a process actually that I do my own research on. So that's probably why I'm excited about it and probably why I'm giving it so much importance. But it's certainly a very critical part of this great idea of biology the cell
0: you did start out studying cells as a biology researcher looking specifically at yeast cells why is yeast such a good model for this
1: yes people often ask that question because they think yeast isn't that interesting or maybe it is interesting for making beer and wine and bread i mean that's (laughs) what of course most people think about when they think of yeast well yeast is very simple it's a fungus actually a single-celled fungus. But despite its simplicity, it has all the um, basic processes, components and structures that we find in much more complicated cells and organisms. What a yeast is, it's something we call a eukaryote. That means actually that it has a nucleus where the genes are kept, which I'm sure we'll discuss a bit later. And Nearly every living thing you see around us or animals or plants and all fungi are eukaryotes. There is another class of life called prokaryotes, which are bacteria and very, very small. Now, yeast is small, too, but it, despite that, it's very similar in the way it works and the way it is to cells in found in all these other organisms. So it's a great model. It's simple, but it's relevant even to our own cells. And it's also incredibly easy to study, it grows fast, it's simple to grow, it's not expensive, and it's got fantastic genetics, by which I mean, you can cross one yeast to another yeast and look at how the genes segregate in that process. And that's all very easy to do. So a powerful system to investigate life's processes, but one, despite its simplicity, that's relevant to much of the rest of the life on our planet.
0: While yeast is on the simpler side of things, humans are a more complex cellular organism. We are an ever-changing colony of cells that includes something around 30 trillion human cells and also non-human cells. Why are non-human cells a part of us and what exactly do they do, Paul? Well, you
1: know, Trey, that's really quite exciting because I don't think we fully understood how many other living things live within us and on us until relatively recent decades, to be quite honest with you. We look upon ourselves as, obviously, here we are as a human being, but we have many microbes, single-celled bacteria primarily, that are living within us, particularly in our gut, for example, and also on our skin. And these sometimes are helping us and sometimes are harming us So diseases, infectious diseases can be caused by pathogenic bacteria, but bacteria also do good things in our gut, helping our metabolism, helping us digest and deal with food. So we have to look upon ourselves as sort of like a gigantic mixture of different types of cells. Our own cells but many, many microbial cells as well. And it's only in relatively recent years that we've realised how important these cells are for both health and disease. And in fact, certain diseases now, the origins and the way the disease works, can be traced back to what we call the microbiome. That is the microbial populations that live within us and on us. And it's a brave new world that we're only just discovering.
0: And microbiome is a big buzzword in the health and fitness realm right now. The microbiome of the skin, of the gut. Is the microbiome as big a deal as is being made out to be by folks in the fitness realm?
1: It's certainly important and interesting It may not be quite as big a deal as those trying to sell products all around it or sell their (laughs) services, of course. So we have to take some of that with a bit of a pinch of salt. But I don't want to underestimate that it is important. But there's many things that are important in health and disease and some that are probably more important. But we do need to understand the microbiome. We do need to understand how it affects our health and whether we can make it healthier for us. But it may be exactly as you say, it's a bit trendy in some circles, for absolutely sure.
0: The second facet that you examine and explain and talk about and look at the history of in helping to answer the question, what is life, is the gene. What is the theory of Mendelism, and how has it helped us better understand genes?
1: Well, the gene is critical. It's the basis of heredity. It is, of course, very familiar to the public. We're always talking about genes and genetics and so on. And this is where it differs a bit from cells, which get less airtime than, for example, genes and genetics. And basically, the reason is the genes that cause the similarities that we have with our parents. If we have a big nose, as I happen to have, I have inherited that in part from the fact that my parents probably had a biggish nose as well, for example. Now, this is an interesting issue that perhaps we don't think about, which is the constancy of order, of characteristics in a human being, or for that matter, in any life form, is maintained constantly from generation to generation to generation. And that order is conserved, it's maintained. And that sometimes gives the physicists a bit of a problem because... Think of the second law of thermodynamics. That's the law which says that the universe is constantly moving to disorder and chaos. And yet they see life maintaining it over many, many years. In fact, ultimately billions of years. And it looks as if it contravenes that law. Now, it doesn't really for a couple of reasons. One is because the cell maintains order and it does that by creating greater disorder around it but critical to it is the hereditary material. And that is the gene. It's made of DNA. That's deoxyribonucleic acid. And that acts as a sort of code script for many of the activities that go on in cells. And these genes are precisely copied every time a cell reproduces during that cell division cycle that I was just talking about a few minutes ago. So that's another reason why cell reproduction is so important, because inherent within that is the copying of the genes that will ensure that every newly divided cell has a full copy, a full complement of genes. All of this is based upon DNA, and the DNA encodes information, information that's found in the sequence of nucleotide bases that make up a DNA molecule. This, as you pointed out, was discovered by Mendel. He was a monk who in the eighteen sixties. Actually one thing I wanted to say is that some of these ideas really have quite a long history. They're not something that was just invented ten or even fifty years ago. Mendelism, the discovery of the basics of heredity had its origins in 1865, so 150 years ago. And it's been critical to understanding life. And you know, what Mendel did is, he was a monk, but he belonged to an order, an Augustinian order, in Brno, which is now in the Czech Republic. It was then in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he was a teacher of local schools in science, but he was allowed to do research. And he had a big plot in the garden of the monastery. He had quite a large greenhouse and he did all his genetics with pea plants, crossing different pea plants with different heights, different flower colours and different characteristics like this, investigating how these characteristics are inherited from one generation to another. And he published a couple of brilliant papers. I've been to this monastery and I've seen the original papers. I actually went there, first of all, in the middle of the Cold War in the 1980s. And I visited the monastery. I visited a little tiny museum. I saw some of the things that he worked with. He was an amateur astronomer and he had a little telescope. He looked at the moon, a meteorologist. He studied weather as well, a bit of a polymath. But his great discovery was the gene and genetics published in these two papers. And do you know something, Trey? It had no impact at all. He published in quite decent journal, scientific journal, sent it to scientists around the world, and nobody took the slightest bit of notice of it. He became in the end, the abbot of the monastery. He didn't get any recognition for his science. And it was all discovered later, 30 years later, long after he was dead, And he was seen as the father of genetics. He didn't quite get everything right. 30 years later, they got it more clearly stated. But there's no question he was the origin of it, yet he got no credit for it. It's sad in some ways, but it's great to recognise that a gardening monk could have such a huge impact on science.
0: That is fascinating. And the uh, amount of time ago that he was learning and discovering and trying to get the word out on all of these things is very impressive as well. Now, a little bit less than 100 years later, and I would be remiss not to ask you about this, considering that you're the director of the Francis Crick Institute in London, Francis Crick and James Watson discovered something crucial for this conversation at Cambridge in the 1950s. What exactly was it?
1: Well, this was the structure of DNA. Now, the story goes back a little bit before that, and in fact, back in the USA, because before the structure of DNA could be worked on, it had to be shown that DNA was actually the chemical basis of heredity, the basis of the gene. And that actually occurred in New York, in Rockefeller University, And I was once president of Rockefeller University. I left there about 10 years ago. And it was discovered by a group led by Oswald Avery. And he was working on a bacterium called pneumococcus. And pneumococcus bacteria, the colonies that they make, had two possible sort of structures, a smooth one and a rough one. And what he found is he could turn one into the other by extracting chemicals from one and essentially sprinkling it on the other one. And if they took up certain chemicals, then they could be transformed from one type of shaped rough to smooth or smooth to rough. And what Avery did was to purify the chemical that was responsible for it and found out that it was DNA. And that was in the 1940s, I think, 1944. He published beautiful work, but it was quite controversial. And so it wasn't well received that necessarily DNA was responsible for the heredity for gene, but it turned out to be right. And that was shown, as you rightly say, by the studies of Francis Crick, after which we named the institute I'm sitting in today, Jim Watson, who I knew very well and haven't seen him for a few years, but knew, him, of course, very well, and Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins, who were important, both of them, and in fact did the experimental work. Morris started it, who I also knew, but Rosalind, I didn't. But Rosalind produced beautiful pictures of the structure of what DNA looked like with sort of X-ray photographs. And what Watson and Crick did was to interpret that experimental evidence correctly to show that, in fact, DNA was a double helical structure. And we, of course, are very familiar with it now. But they did more than that they interpreted what it meant for biology because that double helical structure, which is like a string of the nucleotide bases in a, a ladder, really, where you have a string of bases down one side of the ladder with rungs across. And one base will only match another base. And if I give the bases letter names, an A will only match a T, a G will only match a C. So if you tear that ladder apart break the rungs, then you can recreate the other half of the ladder by every time you have, everywhere where you have an A, you put a T and everywhere you have a G, you put a C. So what this meant was two things. One, that you could make a precise copy of the original molecule. And so after this process was finished, you'd have two. And second, it meant that the information which had to be conveyed in the gene, that information had to be somehow encoded by the order and type of bases that made up the DNA molecule. And that was a brilliant piece of insight to see that that meant the gene was a component of information, rather like reading a sentence in a book. Sentences in a book are made up of letters that form words. And the way you can think about DNA is it's made up of letters that form words that you can read, and this is information. So this was absolutely a brilliant piece of work that really explained the nature of heredity. Wonderful work, and wonderful. I knew most of the people there except Rosalind Franklin, who died when I was a very small boy, and I've always been full of admiration for what that group of individuals achieved.
0: Deciphering the genetic code Paved the way for modifying gene sequencing. Fast forward a number of years, the Human Genome Project included a list of around 22,000 protein encoding genes. Why is this notable?
1: Well, this was very important, the sequencing of the human genome. Sequencing itself was, and I talk a bit about this in the book, was invented by another friend of mine called Fred Sanger also working in England in Cambridge. DNA was work from both London and Cambridge by the way and once that method had been perfected it meant that you could sequence the entire genome of organisms and if I can come back to the yeast that I worked on this was the third eukaryote that was sequenced. I arranged it from my laboratory. We put together a group of over 100 people to do it. We sort of parceled it out like cottage industry. It ended up being the third eukaryote that was sequenced at very high quality. And what that meant was that we could read every single gene in that yeast. There's about 5,000 of them. Now, I'm interested in yeast, but we've got to be honest about it. Most people aren't that interested in yeast, but they really are interested in human beings, of course. And that was a much more difficult task to actually sequence the human sequence, because it's so much bigger, so much bigger. And that took quite a few years to actually do. And that in turn identified, as you've rightly said, Trey, the 22,000 genes that encode the proteins that do all the things that make us human. And why is that important? Well, the way I view it, it's like having, if you're trying to write a play, You have the list of actors in the play, and this is like the list of genes. And then when the actors interact with each other, they make the play. And when these genes all interact with each other, they make a a human being. But if you didn't have the list of actors, you couldn't really consider the play. And if we didn't have the list of the genes and what they were, we couldn't really start thinking about how life works. It's absolutely critical for progress in understanding humans, understanding what we are, and understanding disease and how we might cure it. Very important.
0: Considering how complex the human genome is, Paul, how different are our genomes based on things like gender and ethnicity?
1: You know, we are remarkably similar to all of our colleagues throughout the world. There's very, very little difference in our genomes, from one nation to another, from one continent to another. Remarkably similar. In fact, we're pretty similar to some of our ape-like relatives. Something like 95% of our genes are almost identical to chimpanzees, a bit less so for gorillas and orangutans. We're remarkably similar. Actually, you'll be disturbed to hear, many of our genes are also in common with the simple yeast that I was telling you about, which I studied, which is one reason why yeast is such a good model. And that is extraordinary if you think how simple yeast is and how complex humans are.
0: So the next time I'm drinking a beer, I can uh, hug that bottle as if I'm hugging a distant relative, Paul?
1: You are hugging a distant relative, and that's exactly how you should view it.
0: (laughs) The uh, third part of your answer on what is life is evolution by natural selection. Of course, the simplest way to explain natural selection, to describe it, is survival of the fittest. How is natural selection often misunderstood, though?
1: Well, natural selection is probably the most beautiful idea in biology. It's a way in which you can generate what looks like purpose, adaption to a certain lifestyle or for living in particular circumstances without design. You don't have to design it. It actually comes about by this process of natural selection. I think it is quite often misunderstood because people don't fully understand it and think clearly about what it is. So I'm going to say, describe it And I'm going to describe it in terms of the two ideas we've already spoken about, the idea of the cell and the gene. So we have cells that are living, and they have genes which determine how those cells behave. Now, when we go through the cell cycle, cell division cycle, and I've already spoken about that, those genes are copied and then separated from each other, and they're inherited by the two newly divided cells. Now, during that copying process, there can be some mistakes made. So there's a few genetic changes. Or sometimes the DNA can be exposed to damaging agents like UV from the sun or even chemical ones that also produce alterations in that nucleotide, that base sequence that I told you about. So although there's hereditary material, that is the gene, which is constant from one cell cycle to the next through cell reproduction, there is variability too due to this damage and due to mistakes during replication. And that variability is really, really critical and really, really important. Because what it means is that when the cells do divide, they're never quite exactly the same. Now, if you take, let's imagine, just for the sake of argument, that a cell can be red or white and let's say that red cells are more attractive to some other organism, a bird or something to eat, then if you have a population of red cells and they are red because there's a a protein in there encoded by a gene that makes the cells red, then just occasionally the gene that encodes that red protein might become damaged and then you no longer make the red protein and as a consequence, the cells become white. Now, let's say the bird doesn't like eating white cells. Then what that will mean is, is that the population of red cells will turn into white ones. So they undergo a significant change and it will survive. It's naturally selected because the birds don't like to eat them. And so the population of cells shifts And you see now what looks like a completely different cell. It's white rather than red. That's the basic principle, that you have to have an entity like a cell. It has to have a genetic system, which is made of genes. That genetic system has to encode the components that the cell needs. And it has to exhibit variability upon which natural selection can work. If you put all of that together, and it's a natural consequence of the two first ideas, then what you produce is a machine that can undergo natural selection and can evolve. And over the aeons of time, hundreds of millions of years, billions of years, then gradually all sorts of diverse life forms can be formed. And we start with single cells, a bit like bacteria, which are three billion years or more old, three and a half billion years, actually. We get yeast cells or things like yeast cells one and a half billion years ago. And gradually, we move to getting animals and plants 500 million years ago and now ourselves. And it's all based on that extraordinary process discovered by Charles Darwin, or at least best argued by Charles Darwin, which can generate the diversity of life.
0: So that's a great explanation of natural selection. I also enjoyed your giraffe example in the book, but people will just need to buy and read it to find that out. What is artificial selection, though?
1: Now, that's good, too, because artificial selection is when humans intervene. So instead of allowing a natural selection, that is for the birds to eat all the red cells, A human being, when they spot a white cell, takes that white cell and selects it away artificially and then grows that up. So you get the change that we're talking about much more rapidly because you don't have to go through natural selection. It's been artificially selected by a human being.
0: The fourth component of your answer on what is life is life as chemistry. Why is chemistry's impact on so many aspects of life so awe-inspiring for you, Paul?
1: Well, this was perhaps the most complicated chapter for me to write, to be quite honest, because the chemistry we find in a tiny yeast cell, and it is really, really tiny. You're right that an egg, a hen's egg, is an example of a big cell, but most of the cells that make up our body, we need to have a microscope that magnifies a hundredfold to be able to see them. But everything that's going on in that cell that is important for the life of the cell is based on chemistry. Well, chemistry and physics as well, because in fact they're both involved. And there's some important things to say about this. What this means first is that the living cell and therefore living organisms are not based on some mysterious force. In the 19th century, it used to be argued that there was something, a vital force that was not physics and not chemistry, but which was the spark of life. And that isn't the case. Living organisms are based on chemistry and physics and can be understood in terms of chemistry and physics. And the basis of that is because it's a very special sort of chemistry, is that you have to have many, many chemical reactions going on at the same time in these cells under quite gentle conditions and these chemical reactions transforming one chemical to another is brought about by enzymes and enzymes are mostly encoded by these proteins that we've just been talking about which in turn are of course encoded by the gene. Now the gene is a string of nucleotides and proteins are a string of amino acids And the amino acids that make up the protein are determined by the order of those nucleotides, those bases that are found on the DNA. And there's 20 different amino acids that you can find in proteins. And so this means that the structure of DNA determines the structure of these proteins. Now, they are made up of these 20 different amino acids, each of which have rather different chemistries. Some of them have a negative charge, some of them have a Positive charge. Some of them don't like water, some of them like water, some of them are bulky, some of them are small. And when they are put together in a string, just like the DNA is a linear string, the protein is made up of a linear string, these different chemistries mean that they can fold up these proteins in different sorts of ways and make particular structures with different parts of that structure having different chemical properties. And this is an absolutely beautiful system, beautiful system for catalyzing chemical reactions, turning one chemical into another chemical. And there's an extraordinary diversity of chemistry that can be generated by these particular proteins and the range of these proteins. Now, both DNA and the protein that comes from DNA is made up of these polymers, these bases, nucleotide bases in the case of DNA, and then amino acids in the case of protein. And the major constituent of both those bases and the amino acids is in fact carbon. So life is based on carbon, and more particularly, it's based on carbon polymers. And what you have is in the DNA is the storage, the long-term storage of information And in the proteins, you have chemical machines that can carry out chemical work as a consequence of the chemical diversity that comes about from those different amino acids. So you transform, if you like, the information stored into DNA into chemical work, which actually gives rise to all the properties that we see in living cells and then in living organisms. And it's a wonderful and amazing Myriad amount of chemistry, thousands of reactions going on at the same time in a small space, all coordinated and working together in a really fantastic way. It's an absolute wonder to even think about.
0: It really is this amazing form of controlled chaos. And because we are limited on time, I'm not going to explore that anymore. People just need to go read the book to find out more about that. I am curious, though, because when I hear photosynthesis, I think plant life, Paul. But it also factors into the lives of humans and other creatures. How so?
1: Well, because what photosynthesis does is it uses energy from the sun. So all life is dependent upon energy of the sun ultimately through plants. And that energy from the sun takes carbon dioxide out of the air and allows with that energy to build the carbon dioxide, which contains carbon, as you can imagine, as well as oxygen. And it builds that carbon into the components that make up the cell, including DNA and including protein, which you'll remember I said was carbon polymers. And we as animals eat plants. And if we didn't have plants around, we wouldn't be able to survive. So we're dependent upon plants and we're dependent on many other living things. So not only are we related, as you pointed out wittily a little while ago because everything on this planet is one of our relatives but we also interact really closely with everything else including plants and so we're part of an interacting whole which is critical for
0: our survival what role do mitochondria play in life
1: mitochondria are a component of cells which make energy what they do is take some of those carbon molecules that have ultimately been made by photosynthesis, break them down into simpler components, and in breaking them down into simpler components, releases energy, and that energy is stored in particular small molecules that are energy rich, and that energy is used to drive all the activities of the cells.
0: The fifth and final component in your answer for the question, what is life, is life as information. Cells use information to regulate themselves. What exactly does this mean?
1: Life as information is perhaps the only idea which hasn't been around for quite some time. The other four ideas that we've discussed together have been around for a really significant period of time. We know them much better now. We have all the details in place. But life as information is implicit in fact in Mendel because the gene is information, but it really has come to the fore in the last 50 years, I would say. And it is really exactly in part, exactly as you said, that to get all that complex chemistry working for the good of the cell in a sort of purposeful manner, for that to happen, all those chemistries have got to be coordinated, working together so that you can achieve the final end of the cell to be able to grow and reproduce and maintain itself and that requires the management of information, collecting information, linking that information together, storing information and using it about to bring purposeful behaviours and I go back to my yellow butterfly that I started in the book and also when you asked about it in the beginning of this talk. That yellow butterfly came into the garden. It was doing something purposeful. I don't quite know what it was. But to do that, it had to gather information about the environment around it. Was there a bird trying to catch it? Were there flowers that it could feed? Was it disturbed by my shadow? So it collected information. It then used that information to make decisions about what it should do. Should it fly off? Should it settle on the flower? Should it feed? Should it hide? And it needed that information to bring about the processes that achieve those particular purposes. Now, that's a sort of example that we can see, but all of this is happening inside a cell. A cell is sensing its environment. It's sensing what it's like inside it. It's taking that information. Sometimes it stores this information to use it later. Sometimes it uses the information to respond directly to whether there's food outside the cell or something else that has to be avoided. And that leads to the purposeful behaviors that we see. And information we see in a really important way in the storage of long-term in the DNA and the structure of the DNA, the sequence of the nucleotides. So information management ensures that living organisms work. It ensures they maintain themselves, that they have homeostasis. In fact, I'm going to say something a bit more than that. We can describe how living things work in terms of chemistry and physics. But if we want to really understand their biological context, how they are working for the life form, it nearly always requires some explanation that builds on the chemistry and transforms it into management information and the prime example is in fact dna we could describe dna in the positions of all the molecules and atoms in dna and that's critical and is essential and it's what brought about the structure of the dna but for it to make biological sense you have to recognize that DNA is in fact a digital information storage device. And the digital information is stored in the sequence of the bases, as I've already explained. Then it makes sense. It explains heredity. If you just leave it as a chemical structure as a double helix, then it doesn't give you any insight into the biological role. And to do that, you need to think in terms of information and the management of it. And in this case, how is information being stored?
0: It was interesting to read about information processing being present with DNA and then also gene regulation, too. And while I'm not going to ask you about this, you ask several very important questions surrounding gene regulation that people should buy this book to learn more about. You compare the partnership between our cells to the inner workings of a smartphone. But as you point out in this book, technology is made up of hardware that's static and inflexible materials. Why do you agree with systems biologist Dennis Bray, who says that the computational material of life is better described as wetware?
1: Isn't it a great term? Dennis is a friend of mine. And he's written a book called Wetware, but I've heard him speak about it. And I'll tell you why. If you look at a computer or a smartphone, what you have is lots of circuits there that are hardwired together and they do work. That's what a silicon chip is, basically. And of course, they're fantastically versatile. And we get them to work with software, which gets these hardware to function in different sorts of ways. Now, life is cleverer than us. It's cleverer than just having hardware, because life is based on wet chemistry. It connects the different parts that act like the digital hardware of a computer. It's connected in a biological system by chemicals diffusing in water from one place to another. Now, what that means is that in addition to managing information in the same way as a computer does, A cell has the ability to rewire its hardware by connecting different components in different sorts of ways. So this is really quite versatile. It means not only can you play with the software, but you can play with the hardware too by rewiring the components together in different sorts of ways because they're connected by diffusing chemicals and the diffusing chemicals can be changed or redirected to go into different places. So that was Dennis Bray's idea to emphasize that and called it wetware because you're connecting it through liquid, and that gives you greater versatility.
0: That's so wonderful. Is a closer examination of the information mechanisms within organisms one of the next great frontiers in biology, Paul?
1: Well, it's been a frontier for some years, to be perfectly honest with you. But it's going to become increasingly important, in my view, in coming years, because if you take literally what i've said you need to be able to describe how living things work in terms of chemistry and physics but to understand what they mean by biology you need to understand the management of information and to do that we have to be a lot more sophisticated in my view than we have been up till now in thinking how that is done and i'm trying to take my own laboratory a bit more in that direction i've thought about information a lot in my life but now i think we can learn something from the amazing things that the information scientists are doing to inform the sort of work that we can do as well. So I'm really looking forward to working on that in the next phase of my experimental life.
0: This entire book is wonderful, and that includes an extra chapter that you, I guess technically it's chapter six, that you title Changing the World, where you share your opinions on some of the bigger things facing mankind right now, and really this planet as a whole. What do you think about CRISPR gene editing, Paul? Yeah.
1: So I wanted to have one chapter just to point out that this book isn't just pointy-headed and intellectual and sort of academic, but understanding life is part of being able to change the world by manipulating it for human benefit, yet at the same time respecting life and respecting our planet. What you mentioned gene editing, CRISPR-Cas, which won the Nobel Prize last year, beautiful work, which is a method that specifically allows you to change genes in particular ways, including, in fact, in human beings, but in fact, in every living organism. Now, we were able to do that in other ways. In fact, we could do it in yeast 40 years ago. It's one reason I worked with yeast, because we could devise methods to do that. But the wonderful thing about CRISPR-Cas is it is applicable to any living thing, whereas the previous methods were only limited to very few living things and were either very complicated or only useful in simple ones like the yeast I worked on. And so CRISPR-Cas can be used in any living thing and it's very, very efficient. What that's going to allow us to do is look at any organism and think, well, how could we change it so it could work for the benefit of society? So let's take crop plants in Africa where people may be living in border type environments that don't have high productivity for crops. Could we make a plant that could cope with drought or could cope with too salty a soil or could cope with not enough water or too much heat? As we understand plants more and more, then we could change the genes that influence some of these characteristics. And so produce a plant that actually could grow in these marginal conditions and so reduce the risk of starvation. So I think this methodology and of course, some people think it's contentious. They sometimes say, well, this is playing God, changing how living things are. But if I think it can relieve suffering, if it can remove the fear of starvation and the actuality of starvation from our colleagues living throughout the world, then we have to consider doing this. I think it's essentially a moral matter that if we have ways and methods of reducing starvation, of getting food sustainability, of doing that and still protecting the environment, then it will be immoral not to use it. And those that argue there's a morality that we shouldn't do it for some other reason have to look at the consequences of that, of potentially more people starving, perhaps diseases not being cured, and say, am I comfortable about that? That my so-called moral principles would condemn some people to a life of misery? It's not something I would feel very happy with.
0: Yeah, I think the people that argue against that don't understand not only the precision of things, but how carefully it's being carried out, too, to ensure that we don't go several steps too far in this CRISPR editing process.
1: It's completely true what you're saying. Let me give you an example. Some uh, people—this is, of course, I haven't said it as much. This is GMO, genetically modified organisms, and this is a very contentious thing. But people— who are against GMOs are very happy to eat plants that have been developed by just hitting the plants with radiation or chemicals that damage the DNA in a random sort of way and is utterly changing the genetic code that's there and then has been selected for having larger seeds and, and greater productivity. But what you can do, as you've rightly said, is use CRISPR-Cas to make very precise changes that are very, very limited and so much more predictable with what they do compared with the random mutagenesis, as we call it, which is the basis of much traditional plant breeding. I just don't think they fully understand what CRISPR-Cas can do, the precision and the accuracy of it compared with conventional plant breeding. And yet they accept traditional plant breeding, but not these new precise methods. I think if they were to think about it more carefully, they'd realize this is not a tenable position.
0: I apologize for my French ahead of time on this next question, Paul, but are we humans going to fuck this whole thing up for all other cellular organisms?
1: Well, there's a danger of it, isn't there? I mean, the main danger we face is, of course, the Industrial Revolution, which was of course, had its origins in the country I now live in, I come from. But the burning of carbon, carbon that came from geological time, the increase in carbon dioxide in the planet in such a rapid way, the subsequent warming of the planet, people like David Attenborough who broadcasts across the world in a very, very useful sort of way, has meant that we do have to cooperate together. We do have to control that so that we can have a sustainable planet for our children, for our grandchildren, for our great-grandchildren. Now, why it's so contentious is because to do that, we have to act together as a community. And some people just don't like that. They don't like taking instructions from others. If you have a very individualistic society, they don't want to be said, told that, well, you can't burn as much coal as you like, you have to think of the planet's future for your later generations but to get through this, we have to act together as a community. We have to act socially for the good of humankind and for the good of the future of humankind. So less individual rights and standing on individual rights, which are extremely important, but more thinking of community, thinking of society. Now, we can do that, but we can't do it if our governments and so on are dominated by this rather selfish approach of simply thinking i want to do this so i'm not going to take any notice of what anybody says it's a bit like wearing masks in the pandemic when people say it's my individual right not to wear a mask even though i may infect somebody else they are not thinking in terms of community or in terms of society they are thinking selfishly and we have to think more about society and community and less about ourselves.
0: Very well said, sir. And my last question I apologize if this is one that you've answered ad nauseum over time, but it's not every day I get to speak with a Nobel Prize winner. Scientists are obviously typically known as being fairly stoic figures. And that's not to say that you're not in touch with your emotions. I would actually argue that you are in touch with your emotions so well that you don't let them have too much control over things. But what was it like to learn that you had won the Nobel Prize nearly two decades ago? and just how much of a game-changer was that for you in life and your career?
1: Well, first of all, I have to say about how I learned about it, because I actually was in an office talking about making a museum for Mendel's Monastery. In Hmm. actual fact, it was in London. I was there with Jim Watson, of all people, who (laughs) was visiting from New York, and uh, we were talking together, and then the secretary came in, from outside, it was an architect's office, and said that my lab had phoned and said, Could I turn on my mobile phone? It was 20 years ago, and mobile phones were very clunky. Um, I was of an age where I just keep mobile phones turned off. I mean, oh, that makes me out as a dinosaur, but it was true, so it wasn't on. I well left the room, I turned on the uh, mobile phone, and there was a message. And the message was in a heavy accent. It was Swedish, of course. And I listened to it. and I didn't fully understand it. And I thought it was a Swedish journalist asking me to comment on the Nobel Prize and who had won it that particular year. It was the date they said it, it was physiology or medicine that I'd won. So I listened to it again and I thought well, I'd better find out who it is who's won it. And when I listened to it again, I realized <laughs> I was being told I had won it, actually which is not where I uh, where I was at all at the beginning. Well, it's amazing what's happened. I mean, you know, the you know, press conferences and so on. I knew when I went into the press conference, the first thing I'd be asked is, what are you going to spend the money on? And I thought a bit about that. And I thought, what do people do? They say either they're going to do something worthy, you know, fund a graduate student or do something like that, or they're going to say something which isn't quite so worthy. and They're going to pay off the mortgage of their house, which is a bit boring or a yacht. And I thought, well actually, I would quite like to have a motorbike, which isn't too big, not too expensive. So perhaps that would do. So I indeed bought myself a motorbike with a small part of the um, prize. How did it change my life? Well, really, what it did was it gave me another job to do, because then you get asked to do everything. You have opinions about everything that people want to hear. And sometimes I've learned that people who win the Nobel Prize, they suffer from a disease, I call it Nobelitis. Um, And the disease is that eventually you start believing that you do have something interesting (laughs) and useful to say about everything. And I've done my best and my family have really helped me with it to um, push that particular disease away.
0: Oh, I think you have a lot of great things to say about cells, biology, chemistry, life, and so much more as evidenced by this book. Sir Paul Nurse is director of the Francis Crick Institute in London. He previously served as president of Rockefeller University, president of the Royal Society, and trustee of the British Museum. He received the 2001 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, and he's the author of the book we've been talking about today, What is Life?, Five Great Ideas in Biology. Paul, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book.
1: Thank you for your time. Thank you for your questions, which can I say were
0: excellent. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder to go to booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and to subscribe to this podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and a review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.